podcast is brought to you by When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Come with us on a journey, a journey through time and space, a journey filled with pop culture adulation and ultra hip monologues. A journey filled with orgasmic soundtracks and unnerving violence. A journey filled with sadistic miscreants and badass heroines. A journey filled with devastating loss and unimaginable triumphs. It's a journey filled with nerve-jangling moments and breathtaking visuals. It's a journey through the vast and ultra-cool filmography known as the Tarantino-verse. But just how much of this universe do you truly know? Come with us as we take a deeper dive into the Tarantino Cinematic Universe. So steal your mind and bolster your nerves, because your journey begins now. Welcome all you QT faithful to the very first Tarantino Bible study. Each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the major scenes from our movie of the month. I am the Reverend Scott Kay, and it is my pleasure to welcome back my good friend Deacon LaPlante as we will be taking Yellow. a deep dive into the gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the book of Reservoir Dogs, chapter 15, the torture scene. Mr. LaPlante, welcome. Welcome to a podcast that you're kind of a part of. I don't know 100%. <laughs> um, but I know that uh, we have, by the time that this comes out, we're recording this well in advance, which is a first for us, <laughs> um, that people will be wondering oh, really? what really happened to our old one. So I will give a small spin and then you give your version. Basically, we have both. Well, more so you. You, your family is starting anew, shall we say? <laughs> and I am my, my family is old, is done with as far as I don't have to rear <laughs> any more children. Have, I don't rear children anymore. So there, you know, I have more free time. And Miss LePlant's free time has kind of come short. If you follow this over, or at least me over, and hopefully Matt will be doing these Bible studies with me as much as he can. Because they're shorter, and we can do them in quick succession. And I love the Bible. But if he is able to join us on a monthly basis, uh, you will remember that he was engaged, is engaged. Yes. And then I will let Matt give any information he wants to give from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I have another kid on the way. So it's going to get crazy. This house is getting nuts, doing a lot of stuff here. As you know, now, wow, this is weird. We'll be talking in the future by now. Maybe the film house will collective will have started. Yes. Or maybe it will have burned down to the ground. <laughs> maybe I'll just uh, pull um, fucking uh, Shoshana and just. Au revoir, Shoshana. You just yeah. set it all on fire. And I'll just set it all on fire. <laughs> They're like, why is he stockpiling film? <laughs> why, why is his head on the screen? 
<laughs> yeah, this is this such is, a terrible and glorious ripoff. This is this is like the worst ripoff of glorious bastards, and he's not even Jewish. <laughs> no, I know. You're gonna she doing Jewish face? This is awful. This is so tasteless. This yeah, and this is really fucked up. The, yeah, I'm I'm behind the ball too because if I even converted right now, I'm I missed the start of Hanukkah, so I'm you not did. even you I did. fucked up. <laughs> so basically, it was hard for the both of us to continue a weekly podcast together even though we enjoyed doing it. So I decided in the interim that uh, while Matt was going to be constrained with his time with his soon-to-be two children, and then also getting an opportunity to basically host, uh, for those of you who are in the Utica, Rome area, host a bi-weekly basically showing. Um, I'll, well, at the end, I'll have him point you to where you can sign up for that. But he will do a bi-weekly showing of uh, cool movies that we kind of were doing on the podcast anyway. So it's almost as if Watch This or Die is coming to life with the Rome capital in a way yeah yeah first film's gonna be hard eight on december 9th which this will be well already after. over and your chances <laughs> yes. are slim to not gonna see it and i'm never it's never gonna play again <laughs> good luck seeing hard eight in upstate new york <laughs> on a movie theater screen but as scott already knows we will be doing nothing but tarantino films in the month of his birthday in march yes Yes, and that's why I started this version of the podcast is I wasn't going to be able to do weekly stuff because I didn't want to do it by myself kind of thing. But those of you who are listening to this will already listen hopefully to the first. I'm calling the worships. This is the Bible study. We have a main worship, so which is our monthly <laughs> chronological going through of every single thing that Tarantino has done. So we'll see how many seasons we get on it and how far I'll go with it. But uh, we talked about Tarantino enough. I did some research. There was nobody, nobody currently doing any kind of continuous Tarantino podcast. No one's out there doing it. There's not a Tarantino anything. You can find people who have had him on a show. You can find people who have done like a couple of podcasts about him, but no one is specifically devoting all their energy to Tarantino. So who better? We talked about it on every podcast anyway, so fuck it. Exactly. So that's why we are now doing what we're doing. But we wanted to give you a little update as to why I didn't want to put it on social that without you telling people that you're having another child. It's kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like they ruined the good surprise on you. Yeah. But we are here to talk about the torture scene from the great movie Reservoir Dogs, which the day that you will actually hear this should be January 21st. That is exactly 30 years to the day from 1992 that this movie debuted at Sundance. Now, I know it didn't come out as the same as it was. I know it was really worked hard at Sundance, and I know it was really used as the backdrop of kind of Tarantino putting his final touches on the movie. He would then release it in October here in the States in 1992. So you were listening to this on the very day that this movie actually saw the light of day for the first time 30 years ago. 30 years ago. So crazy. And now it's time to open your Tarantino Bibles to the book of Reservoir Dogs, chapter 15. And we are talking about what I said for those of you who heard my main Reservoir Dogs episode. I said in that episode with Mr. Steve Smith that this scene, in my opinion, is what not only launched Tarantino, but cemented him as going to be someone to have to take notice with. I believe he helped usher in an entirely new wave or helped also usher in an entirely new wave of directors, giving them the freedom to come up with great movies that we've talked about in other podcasts because this scene at the time pushed the envelopes of violence. It wasn't cartoon violence of the 80s where we've talked about where it's commando and you're watching the guys. <laughs> you can see the launch ramps going off behind them and not, oh, even, yeah. not even trying to Not even them. trying to. No. Like, um, no. 
No. We uh we ran out of pop smoke, so you know <laughs> the ramps are showing. Ah, oh. fuck it, it's way too, way too much work to re, yeah. re set up that shot. So we're just gonna go with it. Mr. LaPlante, how do you feel about this scene in the lore of Tarantino? Because as everyone who should know, when the scene starts, after they start talking, and I'll give you a chance to tell us more information, but the minute K-Billy Super Sounds in the 70s, actually the song Steeler's Wheel, Stuck in the Middle with You, kicks off. As soon as you hear that bass line kick in, the first time you see it, and anytime you see it after that, it's, I don't know, I feel like it just sucks you in. Like, it's almost like a kid across, like, ooh, here comes the good part. You know, like, it. you realize this oh, is yeah. the scene. Yeah, it, in, in that song, I feel like everybody, no matter what, if you knew the song prior to seeing the film and loved the song, after seeing this scene, it made it iconic, even though it's an iconic song to begin with. It's now always related to this. Everybody knows, like, will correlate the two together. I know I do. I know that the minute I hear it, whether it's on the radio, I don't think about, oh, hey, here's the song from a set. I think, oh, yeah. shit. <laughs> I'm like, I need to cut someone's ear off right now yeah, and douse exactly. with gasoline. I need to be dancing with a gasoline can. Like, doesn't matter where. I'm, we could be at a funeral. <laughs> I could hear someone outside. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm this like, comes on at someone's wake. Exactly. You start yeah. dancing. You're like, All right. You start dancing to it. Yeah. No. Um. It does. It. It's just. It's iconic. Yeah. From the moment that that sets in. In 2014, Quentin Tarantino revealed in an interview that the entire soundtrack budget was spent on securing "Stuck in the Middle with You" for the film. Tarantino was content with having no other music in the film as long as he could use that song. The other songs were secured thanks to producers managing to make a record deal for the soundtrack. However, Tarantino and the producers were well aware that that plan might not have worked out at all. Michael Madsen's character as Mr. Blonde, my favorite character in Reservoir Dogs. Mine as well. He is a psycho, plain and simple. Just like, uh, fucking, just like, uh, <laughs> uh, Harvey Keitel calls him, fucking psycho, I'm not working with, with you. Bam, <laughs> bam, bam, you come, who comes in here? The way he breaks down, uh, everything that this obviously psycho sociopath psycho does <laughs> is so great and then to have it like then you finally you get to see like that he really is like it's kind of like that thing that's like he's so charismatic that you just you love him from his entrance into this scene you know you get to see his little bit of backstory and everything yeah um but he's just got that charisma michael madsen has it in in so many films i think he's the evil james dean he, yeah he is evil james yeah. dean you know like the, what made me think of that was when you watch pulp fiction and they have the the james dean character at jack rabbit slims just the way he kind of hunches yeah. over and walks he's all cool i was like man if you spray paint him a black kid and gave him a fucking can of gasoline he's like that's fucking michael madsen so yeah i think michael madsen at least as mr blonde is evil james Dean in this film. He's kind of like Clarence too, in a way. Like he's Clarence. Oh, Clarence yeah, he's Clarence. Was, yeah, he's Clarence. Clarence, Clarence didn't went, have a father. You yeah, know? Clarence had <laughs> no dad and just was like went full fucking evil. But he was bullied his whole life. Yeah, he finally had his enough. whole life. He would have never went, went worked in the um, in the comic book store. He would have actually probably killed um what's his name a long time prior to that gary yeah. Oldman. he would he would have taken out gary Oldman's character and, and, and replaced been, him he would have yeah. replaced them yeah because yeah he just he does he has this charisma so you're just captivated by him once he's on the screen and you you love him you're 
watching him more than any other character. And, you know, this is when you're sitting there watching him with veteran actors that are huge. Yeah, because at the time, he was an unknown. I mean, yeah. in fairness, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi, and him were really relatively unknown. Yeah. Uh, nah. Sean Penn, uh, Harvey Keitel, and even Stephen Wright's voice yeah, Chris, was Chris more well-known than... Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Chris Penn, were more well-known than those three actors who yeah. really steal this, this, the whole entire film. Yeah, no, they, they really were. So he was, like, the new one. The, you know, the heavy that they have is, is Harvey. You know, he's the, the most known actor <laughs> yeah. on set. And um, the uh, what's his name? The, old, the guy that sets up the whole job for him. Lawrence Tierney? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, but, yeah, but if, if, yeah, but if you're a fan of old. Fan, yeah. yeah, old movies. Those are the two, like, that's, I feel like Tarantino maybe when he's picking his casting, he picked them out. I'm and sure And he it. built everybody around them. They bring weight to the fact that it's a gangster movie. You know, they yeah. they have gangster roots, and they yeah. so they, they ground that. That you go, okay, I can believe that these guys are part of this team because right. these guys are here. But yeah, it's um, it's so good because you you do you have that he has that charisma to then when you finally get um like I almost feel like a, what was it fucking Tiffany that made that song? I think we're alone now. <laughs> yes, well, yeah, she covered. It. I, I feel think like it was someone else. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that song should have fucking played for a, a second. Like the second the door closes and he is alone with them, that's what pops in my head. Is like what Michael Madsen's psychopathic brain yeah. is probably hearing and is that he's like, oh yeah, we're fucking alone now, motherfucker, and I'm gonna have fun. It'd have been great if he just sang the first little line. He said, "I think yeah. we're alone now." You know, <laughs> yeah, that'd like, been kind of creepy as fuck. It's creepy enough. Just with the way he's like, oh, finally we're alone. It's so so good, because then you're you're like, how much like malice and <laughs> is there? You're you're waiting to find out, and you're quickly he literally just divulges his whole plan oh, of letting yeah. them know exactly what's gonna happen, and it's at that moment that you know, oh yeah, no, Harvey Keitel's character, Mr. White, was right. He is a fucking psychopath. He is. He's just doing. Doing this shit for pleasure. Well, it's funny you said it because Mr. White actually kills more people on screen. Mr. Blonde kills yeah, no one on screen. Not, Not a, a single, single death. He tortures somebody and almost lights them on fire. But Mr. Blonde, we learn, has killed way more people off screen, but it's killed off zero screen, yeah. on screen. Mr. White kills the most people on screen, and yet we're saying that Mr. Blonde's the fucking problem. The difference yeah. also, though, is in the two dichotomies of those of those two characters is although Mr. Blonde is a psycho, he is the only one technically following his code, right? Yeah. So. As he says, if they hadn't done what I told them not to do, <laughs> to do. they'd still be alive. Like he basically said, if you touch the alarm, I'm gonna fucking shoot you and kill you. They touched the alarm and he went and shot and killed them. I believe that and Mr. White's the reason that there's a rat in the house. I think he's the reason there was a rat in the house two jumps back that he talks about. I yep. think Mr. White's the problem. Mr. White is older and it starts to want, you know. Kind of like what Bill says about Pai Mei, the reason he's going to train the bride. He's like, he's old bastard. He wants company. You know what I mean? He might be an old miserable yeah. bastard, but he, he needs company. So Mr. White, while he may be more professional acting, not just willing to open fire on anybody, he also lets his guard down all the time. There wouldn't be the situation they're in if he hadn't given up so much information, just even simple stuff, to Mr. Oh, Orange yeah. to start with. It's a weird thing. I asked Steve about it. You know, who you follow in this movie? Like, who are you rooting for? You right. know, it's hard because you kind of want to root for Mr. White because they throw us into that situation where he and Mr. Orange and, you know, he feels bad for him. So you go like, oh, I feel bad. And then in pops fucking evil James Dean, who you're like, I probably shouldn't like this guy. But I do. But there's just something so cool about him. Like, <laughs> Look, I'm not going to say it's because he's cutting the ear of a cop off. It could have been anybody's ear. You're just kind of like, oh, okay. 
You know what yeah. I mean? Like, let's let's so sit good. down and hold on tight for what's about to happen here. He's about to fucking go places where I haven't seen. Yeah. It is believed that Quentin named Michael Madsen's character Mr. Blonde as an homage to Clint Eastwood's character Blondie from one of his favorite films, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and not after the actual color of hair. I don't want to, you know, espouse too much joy and goodwill on this film with this part, but I feel like this moment helped open the floodgates for what we would get in 90s cinema. What, yeah. you know, some of the stuff that we would, the shocking stuff, like without them allowing this, this moment to happen, and even though we're going to talk about it, we don't even really see it. It's all in our mind. You don't get the needle or the gimp scene in Pulp Fiction. You don't get the head in the box and some of the other stuff that goes on in Seven. You don't get a lot of things that would push the envelope. Speaking of PTA, you're not going to get the no, suicide like, stuff, the stuff that goes on in Boogie yeah, That's not Boogie happening. Nights, this the stuff suicide is, scene, the fucking yeah, the drug you're not getting scene, some of this um, stuff. You know what I mean? The, like it just uh, the drug robbery scene. This opens the floodgates for it. This opens the floodgates for the 90s. It does. In 92, we are no longer Schwarzenegger, Stallone, muscle guys shooting at crazy things and just things blowing up. We have gone back into like 70s dark cinema, but we've pushed yeah, the envelope because even the 70s, it had, you know, tough violence like you'd see in tax yeah, drama, but didn't go the length of the stuff that we would get that would start from this. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, man. And uh, if you want to go back and see Doc Ock in a totally different light, watch Boogie Nights and see him in his fucking underwear, underwear and robe. <laughs> with a, I think he w- says hello, Peter, there too, I think. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, hello, so, Peter. <laughs> that'd be great to do a deep fake and add uh, add that vocal in on there. Oh, my God, yeah, with, uh, with a little Filipino boy throwing firecrackers. <laughs> <laughs> now... According to, in an interview with Michael Madsen, Kurt Baltz, who plays the aforementioned cop who gets tortured, his ear cut off, dousing gasoline, and all kinds of horrible things, you know, he didn't go through as much pain as Tim Roth having to lay in that fucking syrup blood for as long as he had to. Oh, my God. But he yeah. does, but he is tied up the whole time and all this shit happens to him. But he really wanted to get into character and experience what it would be like to be the cop. So he had Michael Madsen pick him up, put him in the trunk of his car. <laughs> so Michael Madsen at first was a little skeptical about doing it, but he was like, you know, as they, as they kind of drove a little bit more, he got into it. So instead of just like doing a small circle, he drove him around a while, went to a Taco Bell like he would in the movie, <laughs> ordered food, and then ate, and then drove back, and then let him out. So like he, they both really, <laughs> crazily God. enough, dove into the fucking character. So they both had a feeling for it before they even ever shot a, a single uh, a frame of film. Isn't that Michael's actual car too? It is that yeah. that yellowish, blondish uh, Cadillac is uh, the, yeah, is his. Caddy. Yeah. Um, if you follow us on social media, and this is now this is going to go back a bit because you're now going to be about almost a month and a half from when I put it. But one of the first things I put up on the Church of Tarantino page was that uh, they're such a small budget they brought their own clothes and yeah. two <laughs> two things happen so if you don't if you don't pay attention you, it's hard to see but uh, Steve Buscemi is wearing black jeans not black pants and Michael Madsen didn't have black shoes he wore cowboy boots and him wearing the cowboy boots was what allowed for him to stash the razor blade in there, the switch, the, uh, the, uh, the straight razor, and that really wasn't a whole part of it. They weren't sure how they were going to do it. So the cowboy boots, him having to you know, bring his own stuff, led to it. And uh, Chris Penn, the tracksuit, that's all his. That's his own. That's oh, yeah, all I his. believe that. There was probably a big old bag of cocaine in one of those pockets. That was I a sweet it. 1990s windbreaker. Funny little thing just to throw 
in there that then connects to later in the Tarantino universe is with him stashing the blade in his boot. That, ironically, is the same way the bride escapes. In from... fact, it's the same blade. Is it the same blade? Yes, That's it is. Awesome. Michael Madsen gave it to us to, to use as a little Easter egg. Not only is the straight razor that Uma Thurman uses in Kill Bill the same one that Michael Madsen used in Reservoir Dogs, but so are the boots that she wears in the film's Buried Alive sequence. That's awesome, yeah. And that's the way that she gets out of her uh, grave, the grave of, I can't remember what the fuck Well, that it's the way she is. gets out of the handcuffs. The, the, Pie yeah, May is how she gets out, gets out of the grave, damn you. Yeah. Don't you dare disperse Mr. Pie May's <laughs> five-inch punch. Oh, God, yeah. Now, this scene, as brutal as it feels is not as brutal as it is in reality. We do not see, and I think it is the best decision, we don't see the actual ear get cut off. However, if you ask people, majority of the people will tell you they probably saw the ear get cut off. They think they saw it. Their mind told you, told you that you saw it, but you did not. They pan past it. That doesn't mean there's still not some brutal stuff that's going on in the film. Once he gets in, he starts slapping him around a bit. He pulls out the gun and makes him do this. I mean, Kirk Baltz's character just wails and flails, even though he was just told that he's not going to be shot. He's going to wish he was going to be shot. He still instinctively tries to not get shot. Mr. Blonde then goes ahead and slices his face, and then he cuts the ear off. Then he goes out and douses him in gasoline, and then's about to kill him. So there's a lot of tough tension and small moments of violence, but the most intense part we don't see because Tarantino decided to pan left. And then we have uh, Madsen step in the frame with the ear in his hand and just having great dialogue. Just really funny, but just really cold-blooded dialogue. Just shows a real psychopath that he is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was, that good for, was that as good for you as it was for me? <laughs> yeah, you can hear that? Playing telephone with the fucking uh, ear. Weinstein, <laughs> that piece of shit, he did not want it in the film. He didn't want no. the scene. And... and Quentin Tarantino stood his ground and it made it in. Now, I'm sure you've seen it in the special features and myself and Mr. Smith talked about it. It doesn't look as good 30 years down the road. The practical doesn't look as good. I'm sure in 1992, if I'd seen it, the practical looked pretty good. Do you know what I mean? I think we've been, the ante has been upped with all, you know, whether it's the Walking Dead or any of the shows and movies out there where things are getting lopped off left and right now. <laughs> you know, things look a lot better. Still, the side of his head looks fucking grotesque. Oh, it is disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. But when you see it get hacked, it doesn't feel as visceral or as disturbing as it does in my head. As when I yeah, no, remember seeing it when it slides away. Because we hear him. We hear, like, the sound, the great sound. We can kind of hear the ear being cut through. We hear him struggling with the table in his mouth and kind of screaming. And then he steps into frame. And you're just kind of like, holy shit. And that pan left. It's, it's just so smart. It was just such a smart way of, of doing it. Letting the viewer's mind decide what they saw as opposed to seeing it. And we've said oh, yeah. that many times. It's, it's, it's far, makes it far so much tougher. Worse. It makes it so much worse. And I think even like in my first memories of watching this film, like I, if I could travel back like mentally to that time and place... I think I saw it, but I never 100% saw it. 100% with you. 100%. Because, like, it's like, it's one of those things where it's just so, especially for, you know, this uh, film, 
so shocking when you first see it yeah. that you just build up so much more to it. Despite not showing the gory ear amputation, the scene still caused audiences to walk out of screenings at festivals around the world, including Wes Craven. Tarantino was reportedly thrilled that his debut feature was too horrifying for the famed horror movie icon. First of all, I love just the way he hops down. That he's sitting, <laughs> sitting he's up almost on a top kid in the candy store when he, he hears really nice guy. I had to say, we're leaving him with him. He, you almost have to look at his face to make sure he's not smirking. He's almost like, you, really? Like it's yeah. like Christmas. And I, I, I feel like too, like of all the people to pick that need to go on this trip to to see where the diamond uh, to go check on the diamonds. He should be not allowed to stay back here. He already proved <laughs> that he will do whatever he Well, he's wants. Chris Penn's boy. He is You Chris know what Penn's I mean? Boy. He's nice guy Eddie's boy. I think that's why he stays. I think if Joe's there, it might be Mr. White who stays behind. But because yeah. he is Chris Penn's boy, he stays. You know, I mean, he, he stays. He feels that kinship because he sat in jail for four years, could have ratted on him, and didn't. Never he once didn't, right. gave him up. So he feels more trust with him because obviously Larry, Mr. White, is more associated with Joe. You know, Joe and him mm. go back further, where I think Chris and obviously Toothpick Vic go back a lot farther. Yeah, yeah, he does. But yeah, he's a fucking kid in the candy store. And, and the scene is all of seven minutes and 26 seconds. Exactly, roughly around that. From the door, from the moment he jumps off, the door closes to the moment he collapses, and we get (laughs) revealed who the rat is. Yeah, we find out who the rat is. Now we've already talked about it in the worship episode of Reservoir Dogs, and if you don't know, it's thirty years. Come on, if you (laughs) you don't, if you if you stumbled upon a Quentin Tarantino podcast and have no idea what movie it happens in, I especially thirty years, not thirty days ago. You know, (laughs) it's like come on. You decided to watch the, the listen to the episode that's shorter that <laughs> when that first happened the first time i saw it my mind was how the fuck did the cop get free and get to a gun how did mr blonde while well, i tell me you, you done mm-hmm. you finished you like fire i was thinking how did the cop get free and shoot him because in my mind i'm thinking it's not mr orange it's like mr blue it's someone else mr orange is definitely like, he's over there dying like you know what i mean like he's not the rat he set us up for that yeah he's he's been passed out for the majority <laughs> yeah and then all of a sudden they pan and it's him and you're like, and I love the little, the lean he does like that. It's just so fucking good. The little lean he does with the gun of after it's done, almost like he's like trying to somehow will another bullet out at him. Now, at the end of that scene, I will say the one fault is, again, this is his first film, is Michael Madsen's character like falls as the camera's like, they're like, wait, wait. And then like, he should have already been down against the wall. You know what I mean? Like, if you watch it enough times, you're kind of like, he should have already dropped. You know what I mean? Like, it took us a while and then all of a sudden he's just, Suddenly drops. It's almost like when in uh, Kill Bill, like she stabs the guy, and then you know, because they're doing that little uh, kung fu thing, she then then taps the end of the sword, and they all fall down. You know, just to, for, as an homage to old uh, kung fu stuff. If you've seen it enough times, it does. It takes you out just a hair. It's the one. It's a noticeable moment. Where you're like, oh, Michael Madsen should have already been down. Like, like we didn't need to see him fall. We know what happened to him. Like you hit him with six bullets. He's he's not still standing. Oh yeah, no. He didn't slowly walk backwards. No, yeah, then fall at down. All. Not at all. Yeah, there's no, there's no way. Um, yeah, that that is uh, <laughs> uh, for the budget though that they were doing. They did such a it's a, a, the most iconic scene from the film. I'm there saying one of the most iconic scenes of his entire career. Yeah, even maybe one of the most iconic scenes of modern cinema. Yeah, 
You, you know what I mean? Like, I know that like cinema that's come out probably since 2010 to now, it's, it's still going to take some time for that to get into the zeitgeist of our pop culture and our, our cinematic uh, vocabulary. I feel like that's in it. You know, that and like bring out the gimp. You know what I mean? There's certain things you just, you can say and you're just like, mm-hmm. you know, Pulp Fiction and definitely Reservoir Dogs are in. Some of his other movies, like some things in Kill Bill, not all of them, unfortunately, have made it in. They've made it in, like, for people like you and I, who are mm-hmm. just, you know, fall down at the man's feet. He's, he's amazing. Like, if there was... I'm not a very religious person, so a lot of, hopefully, no real religious people join this, because this is this is my religion. That's why <laughs> I, I decided to do it. If I could... If there was Christmas, he his birthday... Christmas would be March 26th on his birthday. That's what Christmas Day is <laughs> for, for me. <laughs> but, but, yeah, this this scene is just... It gripped me. I, I you know, it wasn't... How I got into Tarantino, I've said it on other podcasts when we did our Watch This or Die, we talked about True Romance. True Romance is what got me into Tarantino because I bought the VHS and it said from the the creators of Reservoir Dogs because Reservoir Dogs didn't get a big push here. My special guest on our the very first episode, Steve Smith, he's from the UK. He was lucky enough to actually get to see it in the UK because it got a huge push over in Britain. It was huge over there. So he actually got to see it in the theater. I have since seen it in a theater in different re-releases of it, but I didn't get to see it till about a year and a half after it came out on VHS. That's where I first came across it. Yeah, I feel like in the US it would it was uh, one of the like big um, like v- video store releases. Yes, I think yeah, I think about a year, right before Pulp Fiction that year between that 93 i think it definitely got a bigger push it started to get known in film circles and then anyone who saw pulp fiction if you hadn't seen reservoir dogs yet if you were blown away with pulp fiction you jump back to see reservoir dogs and realize wow what a fucking movie and i am glad that i saw dogs before pulp fiction because of how good pulp fiction is you also forget how good Reservoir Dogs is. Like, I was talking about, like, what's Tarantino's top five or top four, this and that. And sometimes I think, like, Reservoir Dogs slides down for me a bit. But I think recently, having rewatched it a couple of times now, I have forgotten just how good of a film it is and how much joy I get from this scene. And I know how sick that sounds to be full of joy over a scene where a man gets his ear chopped off. And inevitably, your favorite character is blown away. And then you don't even get an opportunity to mourn, I guess, the death of your favorite character? No, not at because all. Because you're like, what? And then they, they had that great banter back and forth, and then also we go to Mr. Orange's stuff, which is fantastic. Uh, we get more exposition of what how this job got put together and everything, but you're suddenly sucked into that story, and then it's not when you come back to, like, all of a sudden Nice Guy Eddie comes walking through the door, and he looks down and he sees Mr. Blonde's dead. You go, oh shit, that's right, Mr. Blonde's dead, because you just have been thrown into this other yeah. world, yeah, and you, you forgot you, you this literally, happened. Yeah, it's so great the way that the break happens there. Because uh, it does, it completely separates you from it. Now, I don't know if you knew this. Originally, the song was going to be Ballroom Blitz. Now, I love that song, but it does it would, not fit it would not for fit. that ear-cutting scene. No. No. It's something about just the way it's stuck in the middle with you starts off. That It's just that slow bass line until suddenly gets a bubble gun. That and then like the beat kicks in. The best way to describe it is if a kids nowadays were suddenly watching, like, I don't know, maybe it's an in-sync song, like, bye, bye, bye. Like, all of a sudden, like, someone's torturing somebody to bye, bye, bye. You know what I mean? You'd be like, yeah. it, the juxtaposition throws you off, but it worked. As I was trying to describe it to Steve Smith, it was like watching violence in a music video form. Yeah. You know no, what it, I mean? Like, like Steelers was like, hey, Quentin Tarantino, do you want to do us a music video? And he's like, have I got a video for you? Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. And uh, the way that um, it, it's just even like the subcontext of just the lyrics. It just, he, he literally, he's stuck in the middle with a psychopath. Like, it, it fits better. Ballroom Blitz wouldn't. You know who would do that? 
And I, I think they did do it. <laughs> Fucking uh, Zack Snyder would use that song. That song works for something like like Suicide Squad. Yeah, or like <laughs> when the Guardians of the Galaxy use Cherry Bomb. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? When they're breaking out, like those songs work for fast paced movement action. This yeah. Bubblegum song, it was like a dance number. It worked perfectly. To yeah. which I saw on um, the special features of the QT8 when they talk about all his eight films. Michael Madsen was saying like they just said, "Can you dance?" He just came out on the fly. Like he had no idea why. He was dancing. He just kind of came up with that whole little sachet dancing with the fucking uh, gas can all on his own, like just a whole little little thing, and him like kind of singing the song. So now here's the funniest thing: Michael Madsen gets hired to play what we're told is the most violent person, and if you watch his violence, it is everything else. Mr. White does is kind of I have to do this. It's like a kill or be killed type of scenario for Mr. White, except at the end when he finally has to do away with Mr. Orange because he's been betrayed and because his dumbass has once again been. Fooled. In fact, Mr. White has the highest on-screen kill count in the film with five. He kills two cops, Joe Cabot, Nice Guy Eddie, and Mr. Orange. And he turns out to be the worst member of the team. And we think he's the best, but he seems to be the worst because he lets the rat in the house again. But Michael Madsen had difficulty filming the torture scene because he has a strong aversion to violence of any kind. He has played three of Tarantino's... <laughs> he's been a violent guy violent. in all three of his movies. Like, Joe Gage doesn't come across as a polite guy. <laughs> you no, know? Joe Gage And he's Bud. He's a fucking killer. Bud's a degenerate. <laughs> Bud's a degenerate. <laughs> oh, God. So it's funny that he's reluctant. But Kurt, the guy who was the unfortunate cop, he ad-libbed a line that his character has a child at home. Madsen, who had just become a new father, was so disturbed by the idea of leaving a child fatherless that he almost couldn't finish the fucking scene. This take made it into the movie. In some version of the film, you can clearly hear someone, maybe even Tarantino, Utter, oh, no, no, <laughs> off screen. So oh I haven't heard that, but now I'm going to have to go back and, and check try it to out. Catch it. Yeah. It's crazy, you know? I mean, because you forget, they're acting. I mean, Michael Madsen, anytime I've ever heard anything of his, you know, any interviews, he seems like the nicest fucking guy in the world. I mean, he's got a oh, horrible yeah. smoker's voice, but he seems like the nicest fucking dude in the entire world. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever got a chance, but if you follow him on Instagram, he did a little homage to this, uh, maybe last Christmas, he played Steeler's Wheel and he came through the house Dressed up, and everyone in the family they they played along with all his kids, and they all had like little um, bandages over their ears, like even hacking. <laughs> it was so good. Man. So he's so good. fucking cool. That's so cool. And it's funny because you see his kids, and they're kind of like, yeah, it's my dad. Like he's a fucking dork. But for me, I'm like, oh my god, I would like give my ear just to have you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like just even have him do that. It's so, oh my god, it'd be amazing. He'd be he's like one of my favorite Tarantino actors. Uh, just actors in general that would just be Agreed. a fun meet. I feel bad because I I'm not trying to talk bad about him because I every time he's in a Tarantino movie I'm so excited I'm like oh he's gonna be yeah. so good. I feel like he's Tarantino's Jason Statham. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like any other movie he's been in it's Michael Madsen and they just want him to be a tough guy and I don't feel like they give him much direction and I don't feel like they give him many great lines or you know a good role. It's like he's just got to be like they almost like they're trying to rehash him as Mr. Blonde without yeah. the coolness of Mr. Blonde. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like I feel like they just throw him into a part but when he's with Tarantino Tarantino directs him Tarantino gives him great everything and he fucking shines every time his three major performances obviously being Mr. Blonde being Bud and being Joe Gage he's great in all three performances and it's just disappointing that other directors and Hollywood hasn't seen him for what he could be I'm not saying he's got to be the leading man of a love story that would be an awkward love story 
But it would be nice to be able <laughs> yeah. to see Michael Madsen do something outside of just everyone trying to rehash him as his tough guy from Reservoir Dogs, you know? Yeah, you're not going to bring it back. You're not going to bring it back. No, he's amazing, and I love every every appearance he, has, he gets in any Tarantino film, whether it be even just as small as him appearing in Bounty Law. Like, it's so great. The other talk I've heard, and this will hopefully make some fans excited, is I have heard that his next novel could be expanding upon either the pre, the during, or the post-Reservoir Dogs movie. Like, he could be going further. It would be really great if he wrote a novel about the Vega Brothers. We'll never get that movie because at this point you'd have to cast brand new people and it'd be tough to find people who look and sound like John Travolta and obviously Michael Madsen. It'd be very weird and I don't know that it would be as good without those two guys doing it, but it would be great to have a novel about them. That would be a lot of fun. I agree. Now, Mr. LaPlante, before we wrap up, have you had a chance or have you ever played the PlayStation 2 Reservoir Dogs video? No, but I've always wanted to. It is fantastic. Maybe the next time you're in town, I have a PS2, I have the game. I will never sell the game. Oh, yeah. It'll no, be one don't, of those things that my kids will probably sell when I'm long dead and I'll be yeah, up there going, you sons of bitches. You know what I mean? Be angry. Dollar. How dare you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, would be, it would be just like... Well, you uh, know what, though? If, if I live 40 more years, it could be worth a lot of money because you're not going to be able to... You know, it's going to be one of those like things that you hold on to forever. You know, your kids will be just like uh, like uh, fucking <laughs> like him and Kill Bill. I'd be like, you sold the Hotori Hanzu sword? It's priceless. In El Paso, it got you. Was it 50 bucks or something? 100 yeah, bucks? Yeah, El Paso got me 150 bucks. <laughs> Certain tickets. So fucking uh, amazing. But that will be Ethan. That will be Ethan selling your fucking... <laughs> it will be worth it. I want to look... Let me look it up now. Let's see what it currently is valued at. Well, while you're looking at that, the Straight Razor, did you buy one or want one after watching this movie. Oh, yeah. The reason I have one is because of this Okay, movie. good. All right. All right. I, 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 didn't want, I didn't want to feel weird, too. And I know that says a lot about us. I know that says... <laughs> it's not like we're using it to shave. Like, my whole thing is like, you know what? Maybe one day this could come in handy. <laughs> so, you know, I might have to hack someone's body parts off. I got one because of him. I even carried it in a boot for a short period of time. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. I love it. And the Reservoir Dogs video game with the case, case and disc is like twenty to eighty dollars depending on where you're going. There's people selling just the discs of it for. I've got the case and the disc, and I probably won't under, sell it. Under, I, under, I love it so much for up to twenty bucks. Now it's a it's it's a video game, so you have to do mission stuff in it. But you get to see how Mister Blue dies. You get to see how everyone goes. You get to play more as the character. So like you, basically, it's like. You start off in the actual uh, jewelry heist. You get to see how that all goes. And then you follow each character how they made it to the warehouse. And, like, you kill more cops. Did Rockstar make it? No, no. You kill more cops than are on the LAPD force. So I don't want anyone to think it's like this, you know, groundbreaking game. But it was fun to play as the characters. And Michael Madsen was the only one to sign on. To do the to visual do the and voice lines. Everyone else is, is is new. It's different. So he's the only one. That's good. I do believe you get to you take someone else prisoner. You get another chance to like torture them too. You can take people prisoners and shoot cops, and you can try to do like be professional and not kill everybody and try to you know make your way back to the place without doing anything. Or you can go full Mr. Blonde and kill everybody. I think we all already know which way I played the game. It was definitely full Mr. Blonde. If anyone has a PS2 and you have an opportunity to get your hands on the Reservoir Dogs game, you will enjoy it. If you're fan of the movie you will thoroughly enjoy the game it's just fun i mean you get to be the characters you get to take out 
bunch of cops who aren't real. They're ones and zeros, folks. Don't get all your panties up in a bunch. But it's a lot of fun. As much fun yeah, as Yeah, you kids play scene. Grand Theft Auto when you're not looking, so just fucking oh, yeah. get I mean, off it's, your it's, high it's, Yeah, at this point, it's nothing that you haven't seen on Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> yeah, but, seriously. But yeah, the it, it's a, it was great fun. The video game is to kill innocent people. <laughs> oh, fucking ridiculous. But yeah. When he goes over and he gets the razor out of his boot and he just turns and he goes, have you been listening to the K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s? Like when he goes in a whole little diatribe and then turns on the song and then the song comes on... It's it's cinematic joy and genius. It's Stephen Wright is so god awful as like a DJ. Like he's great as in the film, but this is K Billy Super Sounds of the Seventies keeps on spinning. The first caller gets two tickets to Don Bodine's The Behemoth to Carson City. Like he has no joy in his voice, but it works so well because it's what a juxtaposition of that just monotoned, almost suicidal voice into like this. Pop bubblegum hit from the dealer's wheel. It was Quentin's now deceased longtime editor Sally Menke who suggested that American comedian Stephen Wright be the voice of K Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s DJ after editing a short film he was in. He just goes in his whole thing and the song comes on. And then, you know, he stands up and just starts dancing with the razor and then just kind of comes over and slashes him like he's going to throw paint on a canvas. It just really adds to seeing that whole song, that whole dance number. I was thinking that night because I rewatched Pulp Fiction. I was like, he doesn't have any other dance numbers. And I was like, Oh, no, he does. It's a very subtle dance number, but it's a dance number nonetheless. It's a dance number to torture. No, yeah, it it really is. It's not not nearly like that. I think we rated this in one of our podcast lists as our favorite, one of the torture scenes or something like that. But it constantly is rated in the top 10 movie torture scenes of all time from Watch Mojo's. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I can't think of many other torture scenes that... Can beat it, or you know that there are nine better. Um, I'm sure there are. I'm sure I have to really go back and really think about some of the stuff that happens. I don't think as many are as stylized. When you add music to it, and then all of a sudden, you know, we've got the visuals. A lot of times, that can become corny or hackneyed, and you know, lose its flavor and lose the impact that it's supposed to have. You know, with the editing choices and the way it was shot and the performances and just that song. It works well. You know what I mean? Like, it still holds the test of time. 30 years later, you don't go, oh, that didn't really last long. You know, like, we can see some other movies and you go, that didn't hold up. Whether it was a visual effects or, you know, a performance. Oh, that didn't really hold up like like we thought it did. This holds up every time. I think it'll hold up six years from now. Yeah, exactly. This is the one that I've always, like, I I said, I think, when we talked about um, when we did Hateful Eight, that would be great as a stage play. Because literally, if you got oh, rid of everything else, amazing. Yes. Well, yeah, because it's all one place. Just, yeah. You could have somebody narrate anything that happens outside of here in between breaks and stuff like that. Absolutely. It, oh, it would be great. It would be so good. But the funny thing that I wanted to bring up to you is during the A24 auctions, they auctioned off a ear from the oh. 10th anniversary special edition DVD release of Reservoir Dogs. And it went for $180. And it's an ear. It, it really is. Like, it looks like it's a stress ball on one side, almost like. Yeah. And the other side, it straight up is just an ear. Ah, oh, it's so cool. And then the other side, it says Reservoir Dogs Special Edition 10 oh. years. So this was. So I have the 15 year DVD, which is comes in the um, the gas can. Nice. I've got it on. I've got it on Blu-ray. I've got it on. You know, I, every form. I, I probably still have a copy of the VHS, but I do have, which is, and I should take a picture so people don't think I'm full of shit. I'll put it up. But I do have a production 
script that I was able to buy many years ago, like almost 30 years ago, back when I was in college up in Rochester, New York. They had this really cool store that sold a lot of memorabilia. So I know I have a production script of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. I may have the marquee. You know, they used to have the marquee, the little... Um, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to describe people don't see it anymore because they don't have them, but they had the marquee that you could light through. So I'm pretty yeah, sure I have that. Blackie. I know I have Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction, and True Romance. I don't know... I. I think I have Reservoir Dogs, but I'm not 100% sure. They don't even have those stores like that anymore. They don't have no, good stuff like that anymore. Yeah, online Everything's now. online now. It sucks. And they mark it all up. Well, I would like to thank my hopeful guest every month on the Bible study, but just in case he's not, the great Deacon LaPlante. I thank him for once again taking time out of his very busy schedule. If you are in the Rome, Utica area on Thursday nights, twice a month, is it the first yes. and third Thursdays? No, or second and fourth. We're gonna we're gonna shoot. It's gonna it's be. A brand, it's a fucking roulette. It's a Russian it's a roulette. roulette. You don't know roulette which Thursday. Thursdays. Some Thursdays in the month. Some Thursdays. Thursdays. If only. you if if you follow this long enough, that is totally a Matt Laplante thing. You just never know. So just to you keep you on know. your toes, you don't know when it's gonna happen. He could change it to a Wednesday out of the fucking blue. He doesn't know. No, it could never happen. will be on a Wednesday. It'll only always on be a Thursday. <laughs> always on Thursdays. But at the Rome Capitol, <laughs> you can uh, go to his page. Why don't you tell us uh, the socials so they can go? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, at Filmhouse Collective on Instagram. There is no uh, current Facebook, but I'm going to probably just get one set up, just uh, setting up individual event pages for it. Um, it's 20 bucks to get you in to the movies that we show only for Filmhouse. It's membership only. So what that rental fee goes to is paying pretty much for me to be able to rent the theater on Thursday nights. That gets you a small soda and small popcorn with both uh, films that you come. You know, eventually maybe we'll expand it and start doing three movies a month. But right now we're sticking to two. And by the time you hear this, we'll be in the middle of ending the January films and going into the February films, um, which for February, I actually already have planned, I believe, True Romance, actually, is one of the two films. Well, that's great because we will be doing True Romance is the next episode for February. And you and I yeah. will be talking about another, so for our perfect. next Bible study, we're going to be doing The Sicilian, one of our oh. favorite scenes of all time. One of the greatest scenes of dialogue. Absolutely. And that will do it for this month's Bible study. I would once again like to thank my good friend Deacon the Plant for joining me. Be sure to tune in next month as Petros Petsilivis from the Caged In Podcast will join me to discuss the Tarantino-written and Tony Scott-directed romantic crime film, True Romance. Now, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by liking our Facebook page at Church of Tarantino or by following us on Instagram at the Church of Tarantino. And lastly, on Twitter at Church of QT Pod. So until next month, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.